Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchstone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Glenda, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop. What are biosimilars? Understanding their role in cancer treatments, current and future perspectives. Now, this is a program that we've done once before, and so some of you may have heard the topic before, and some of you may not have heard this before, but are on the telephone on this program today, really to hear, learn more about what is what are these, and you're going to learn all about them. And today is today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. There are also resources for all of you as well, and it's because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have over 419 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, from all different regions of the United States, both urban, uh, suburban, and rural areas of the United States. And we also have international participants from Canada, France, India, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So really, um, really from all over the world to some extent, and it's a bit of a global call. Now today's uh, program is supported by an educational donation provided by Amgen, and I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. Now we have wonderful speakers on our program today, who are the best. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawler. Dr. Grawler is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawler is going to present to you an overview and definition of biosimilars, so what are they, the difference between biosimilars and generic drugs, how biosimilars work and their use, manufacturing and safety issues, examples of biosimilars, and implications in managing the costs of cancer treatments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Grawler. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn, and it's a pleasure to be with everyone today and to uh, talk about this interesting uh, uh, area. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to participate and to be able to introduce the concept of biosimilars. This is a relatively new term and I think is very worthy of discussion. Before biological therapy, most treatments were based on chemical rather than biological treatments, and this made sense. All of us have a variety of chemical reactions occurring constantly, as seen in digestion and the metabolizing or processing of food and breathing and the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the use of protein to build up muscle and the storage of glucose as a source of energy and reactions in the brain and the regulation of the heart and the function of the immune system and protecting us from many illnesses in the protection and renewal of cells uh, that we are all made of and innumerable, innumerable other chemical reactions. And of course, biochemistry is the chemistry of life. Knowledge of these reactions in everyday functioning of our bodies is the basis of physiology, which is what leads to treatment or therapeutics when the functioning is not quite right. And this knowledge leads to the development of agents to try to correct abnormal functioning when illness occurs. We do best in medicine when we understand how normal functioning occurs, what goes wrong with important pathways when we have illness, and how we can correct or enhance proper functioning. And this is true in cancer treatment and supportive care in people with cancer as well. So where do effective drugs or treatments come from? Often medicines can be synthesized or constructed in the laboratory because they're chemicals. Pharmacologists and medicinal chemists are able to produce many medicines in special laboratories to make large amounts of these agents and to do so under the safest and the most sterile conditions. These agents can be totally synthesized in the laboratory. This is how so many medicines are made. And as we've learned more <coughs> excuse me, about illness and treatment, often the structures of medicines have become very, very complex. Since these treatments are based on knowledge of normal biology, the concept of using biological agents or chemicals taken from biological sources has become increasingly more common. So biological methods 
led to the development of modern vaccines, which have done so much for human health with the eradication of smallpox and nearly of polio, uh, just to use some examples. This approach of using biological sources for making medicines is the field of biopharmaceuticals or biologics. A real breakthrough in biologics, biologics occurs, occurred later in the 20th century when the technology of recombinant DNA was developed. This has helped to make synthetic human insulin, which is a great improvement in the treatment of diabetes. Further refinement in recombinant DNA technology allowed other types of important agents to be produced, such as types of growth hormones that may not be at optimal level in various conditions or making custom-designed antibodies or monoclonal antibodies, biologicals, to work in important pathways to reverse illness, often seen in such conditions as rheumatoid arthritis, which have been truly breakthrough approaches. And of course, special monoclonal antibodies have become routine in the treatment of lymphoma and in special types of breast cancer for many years. Newer pathways have been discovered more recently, including issues concerning the immune system, and biologics have been produced that are monoclonal antibodies directed at important mechanisms affecting many more cancers, such as lung cancer and melanoma, among others, with some very new and exciting progress. Supportive care in cancer, including the avoidance of infection and the lessening of anemia, also involve in the use of biopharmaceuticals. And these agents have been used for quite a few years now. So biologicals or biopharmaceuticals are a major part of modern medicine of modern cancer care, both in fighting cancers directly and in supporting the patient and maintaining quality of life. Now, when purely chemical drugs are wholly synthesized in the laboratory, they have a very clear structure. When someone invents such a chemical and it's shown to be safe and effective, the individual company obtains a patent and the right to sell the agent. <coughs> Excuse me. With a patent, that company has the exclusive right to produce and market that agent over a period of years. Other but different drugs, different, could be made to treat the same condition, but only the patent holder can make that very specific drug. When the patent expires, since the structure is known, others can make copy of, those, of that drug, and they're called generics. Of course, before selling the generic copy, copies, a new company must, in the U.S., pass many tests as determined by the FDA or by other regulators in other countries. But remember, we said that biologics are increasingly complicated, both in their structure and in their production. They're not straightforward chemicals. Producing a highly complex protein or antib antibody by biologic means is quite different than synthesizing a small mo molecule chemical medicine. So this is how the concept of biosimilars, or sometimes called follow-on biologics, came about. Once the original patent for a biologic agent expires, other companies may produce a biologic product that is nearly identical to the first agent. What is typically important is that the biosimilar performs the same function as the original agent when the agents are compared. Of course, this is a very arduous and detailed process that the FDA in the U.S. or Health Canada in that country or the EMA in Europe, as examples, have set forward. So biosimilars work in the same way as the original biologic mechanism for the same indications. In cancer medicine, the initial example of this in the U.S. occurred a few years ago after the expiration of a patent of the very frequently used biologic nupogen or filgrastim. Filgrastim functions to increase normal white blood cells to prevent infection. Another company then introduced a biosimilar, which is called by the complicated name filgrastim SNDZ. Of course, there are many other biologics used in other disease areas, and many biologics are now used in cancer treatment and supportive care. It has been anticipated that this initial agent in oncology, the filgrastim biosimilar, was only the beginning, with many other biologics anticipated to go off patent in the not-too-distant future for other companies to become involved and for a large growth in the availability of biosimilars in the U.S. and many other countries very soon. 
The main advantage of biosimilars right now, when properly tested and approved, is to introduce competition into the practical aspects of cancer care. In my view, this has two immediate positive consequences. One, it can lead to cost savings for all, and two, it can spur an even greater competitive spirit into creating increasingly better treatments. Now, I'll be very interested to hear the updates and comments of my colleagues, Drs. Crawford and Lee, in the following presentations, and I know that Dr. Crawford will be addressing us next. I'll now hand the program back to Dr. Carolyn Messner. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Grala. That was really outstanding and so comprehensive. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A, and, and thank you for really setting the whole stage for the program today. And our next speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Crawford. Uh, Dr. Crawford is a George Barth Geller Professor for Research in Cancer, Department of Medicine, Duke University School of Medicine, Co-Director Solid Tumor Therapeutics Program, Duke Cancer Center, Duke Cancer Institute. And Dr. Crawford is going to be addressing clinical trials, how biosimilar research contributes to treatment options, the benefits of biosimilars, current use in the care of people living with cancer, key questions to ask your healthcare team about biosimilars, and current and future perspectives. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Crawford. Carolyn, thank you very much. Uh, it's wonderful to be on this program again with you and Dr. Grala and Dr. Lee today. Uh, and for our audience uh, to have the time to, to listen to us and hopefully ask some questions. So uh, what I'd like to do is just to follow up on uh, some of the comments that were made by Dr. Grala that I think uh, really nicely set the stage. And to start with, to talk about clinical trials, because that's the way in which all drugs ultimately get approved. What's really different, though, about biosimilars than the normal drug pathways is that the clinical trial is only one and a fairly small piece of the overall development that goes on that leads ultimately to FDA approval. If we start with the reference biologics or the original molecules, as Dr. Grawl is talking about with proteins and antibodies, what happens is there, initially there's a preclinical step of what we call molecular characterization where the protein is defined and um, synthesized and developed. And, and ultimately, preclinical studies are done uh, that lead to studies in animals that then say that there's a biologic effect here that we now want to study in people. And then there's a, a fairly long sequence of clinical trial development that goes from what are called phase one trials, which are the first in, in humans, uh, to test safety and maybe get some hints of whether they're beneficial or not. And then it goes on to phase two studies, which are more developed in a specific area, ultimately phase three to test versus a standard uh, of care. And ultimately, if there's evidence of safety and clinical benefit, then it goes before the FDA or other regulatory agency outside of the U.S. for ultimate approval. And even after approval, there is the um, post-marketing studies that are done to show that um, the studies uh, continue to be effective, that the agents haven't changed in some way, uh, and that the impact on a broader population of clinical trials is occurring. So that that's the standard approach with drug development and with uh, original biologic development. Um, but with biosimilars, the difference is most of the work is really done to show that the molecule that's being made is really as similar as possible to the originator molecule. So that takes a lot of molecular characterization, things like NMR spectroscopy, which I hardly understand what that is, uh, and a variety of other things to look at whether the protein that's being made has the right binding characteristics, whether it behaves in the lab like the originator molecule does. Uh, there are studies then moving forward to test it to, in humans to see that its drug distribution, how it distributes in the blood is the same between the biosimilar and the original product, uh, that it's not immunogenic, meaning that it doesn't form antibodies uh, that would might, might neutralize the benefit. Uh, and after all that, really, you know, there can be very little clinical study. There's usually one or maybe a couple small clinical trials that test the biosimilar versus the originator molecule to show that the benefit, the clinical benefit is the same. And so it's really what the FDA looks at is really the, the, what's called the totality of evidence. They look to see that 
the whole package from the very preclinical work up through the clinical work supports that this molecule is the same essentially as the originator molecule. And from that, one can then extrapolate from those studies to whatever other indications there might be for the molecule. And that's where the money is really saved. So the money is saved by not doing a lot of studies to prove that it's the same in every single indication. And from that cost savings, as Dr. Grala said, that there can be a significant lowering then of the cost of these biosimilars in the marketplace that leads to competition and ultimately to benefit for the healthcare system and for uh, for patients. So he mentioned that um, the first biosimilar that was approved was this uh, Philgrastum SNDZ, the white cell stimulator uh, that is very similar to Nupigen, which is available. And it uh, went through that same process, as I mentioned, and, and was documented to be beneficial from the clinical trials that were done uh, and is now available uh, in the clinic. And it's being used widely uh, and may be something that uh, if some of you are taking a medicine for trying to reduce a low white blood count from chemotherapy, you may actually be receiving that. And that would be something you could certainly ask your, your oncologist about. Are you getting this biosimilar? Or are you getting the original product? But I think our comfort level is, is good with either agent, um, given the package that led to its approval and the work that has been ongoing. Now, in addition to that agent, um, just recently in the last uh, few weeks, the FDA has approved a red blood cell stimulator, uh, something that's like Epigen or Procrit, but it's got a name Retacrit, and that's to stimulate red blood cell production, mainly in the area of cancer as well as in uh, patients with kidney disease. There's also a host of drugs that are developed, um, as Dr. Grala was mentioning, for things like rheumatoid arthritis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, uh, and those are also available, um, and there are at least six or seven currently approved. So we have some supportive care drugs in cancer. We have some drugs in the broader range of inflammatory diseases that are approved. And most recently, I think the area that uh, is particularly exciting for us is the development of more therapeutic biosimilars. These are agents that have more anti-cancer activity directly uh, than the supportive care agents, and there are two approved. One is bevacizumab, uh, which is a, an agent that is used in a number of conditions, colorectal cancer and lung cancer, among others. Uh, it's, it's a medicine that helps uh, inhibit the growth of blood vessels. Uh, it's known as Avastin by its uh, brand name, uh, the original one, but there's a biosimilar version available. And most recently, trastuzumab, which is a biosimilar uh, of Herceptin, which is a medicine used very widely in breast cancer and, and, and some forms of gastric cancer. So all of these drugs have gone through that same general process I've talked about. Uh, those two drugs themselves, those two biosimilars, are not yet available because, as Dr. Gral is mentioning, they won't be available until the patent ends on the originator molecule. For bevacizumab, that'll be in 2020, and for trastuzumab, that'll be in 2019. But I think uh, we will see several other agents developed over the next few years that will also be biosimilars that will broaden the competition and allow for more options for patients and for healthcare systems and for payers um, to pick among them, which I think will be helpful. In addition to those agents, there's a, a biosimilar rituximab, which is an agent used in lymphoma. There's biosimilar cetuximab, which is going to be used as an antibody in colorectal cancer and head and neck cancer. And again, we expect to see several different agents uh, competing with the originator molecule. And the reason for that is that actually broadens the marketplace and actually leads to more competition and ultimately to, to more cost saving. And that cost saving could be not only for the healthcare system, but hopefully for patients. Uh, it's really staggering to see the cost of oncology care. We know that um, just in the last five years, cost of oncology therapeutics has almost doubled from $23 billion in 2011 to $44 billion in 2016. Uh, if we look at an agent like this Herceptin or Trastuzumab, in 2016, global expense was $6 billion, and Bevacizumab was quite similar. So this is a lot of money, and on an individual basis, for a patient getting Herceptin or Trastuzumab, it's seventy dollars or $80,000 a year. And with copays and um, other 
uh, out-of-pocket expenses, a significant amount of that money might be passed on to the patients, unfortunately. So the biosimilars have the opportunity of reducing those costs for individual agents and then for the healthcare system and ultimately, hopefully, for the patient. And as Dr. Grawl was saying, I think the other real benefit of these agents is that it re-stimulates the uh, educational process for the providers, for, uh, for the patients, to talk about what the issues are, about where we are with those agents, what we need to know more about, whether it's neutropenia or management of breast cancer. Having more agents in the marketplace and more uh, people involved is quite important. So I think the, uh, the key questions you can ask your healthcare team at this point is really more around um, am I getting a biosimilar now or what, what, what is your feeling about biosimilars? How much do they know about biosimilars? I think at this point it's still relatively early, so I think the medical community is still learning about this. I think in the near future, I think will be a lot of issues around things that I think Dr. Lee will likely address around the formulary, how the pharmacists decide which agents uh, go on their formulary, whether or not these drugs can be substituted one for the other, how we follow these over time uh, to decide uh, whether or not they remain safe uh, and what the continued uh, economics are. And then most important, an ongoing process of provider and patient education. So with that, I'm going to stop and be happy to take questions later, but I'll turn this back to Dr. Carolyn Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Crawford. That was really, again, outstanding and um, and just a lot of inf wonderful information I think people will be able to use with their healthcare team and also um, and they'll probably spur some questions for you as well. So thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Edward Lee. Uh, Dr. Lee is a pharmacist and he's professor, University of New England College of, Medi of Pharmacy. And um, Dr. Lee will be addressing the role of your pharmacist, important questions to ask your pharmacist about biosimilars, and how your pharmacist may assist you in a timely refilling of your prescriptions. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Lee. Great. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and uh, thank you for uh, having me come here and speak with uh, my esteemed colleagues here. I'm certainly glad um, and excited to be talking to you today about uh, the role of the pharmacist, specifically because I think uh, many of us know our friendly neighborhood pharmacists, say at CVS or Walgreens, uh, but it's not commonly known that uh, there are lots and lots of pharmacists who are involved in the uh, cancer care team who actually perform uh, lots of uh, clinical services as well. So we can find pharmacists within the hospitals rounding with the medical team um, if uh, uh, for people who are uh, admitted to the hospital. Um, you can find pharmacists who are helping with the prescribing and monitoring of different cancer therapies, and you can find pharmacists who are helping with managing the side effects uh, of those therapies um, and uh, helping to, pr to, to use some supportive care medications to uh, help to prevent uh, and, uh, and treat those side effects of the cancer therapies. And when it comes down to the pharmacist's role in biosimilars, um, you know, I think Dr. Crawford had it um, 100% correct in terms of uh, one of our, our major roles is uh, to be involved with what we call the formulary process. And so what does that actually mean? Um, so the pharmacist uh, is in charge of what's called product selection and or drug product selection. And um, there's a huge difference. Not many people know that there's a big difference between what uh, a drug is and what the drug product is. So the drug is, um, or in this case, the biologic, um, is uh, the molecule, uh, the chemical structure of what works to treat the condition that, uh, that it's intended to treat. Uh, however, the, the drug or biological product is actually what is put into your body. Um, and so that's influenced by who actually makes it and formulates it in a way to get it into your body. And uh, a lot of times when we're talking about brand new, uh, brand new drugs or biologics, there is only one drug product or drug or biological product because there is only one person who makes it um, for the reasons that were mentioned before. Uh, and but what we're talking about now is an era of biosimilars. Now there can be many biological products for a specific biologic. So the responsibility of the pharmacist now is to select um, the best product uh, to give to the patients um, uh, based off of uh, three different domains, uh, the efficacy or how well it works, 
uh, the safety or, you know, whether or not um, there are significant side effects and also the cost of it. So uh, the pharmacist is actually legally obligated to, to dispense um, therapeutically equivalent and lowest cost products. So when an order or prescription for a drug or biologic is, uh, is made, uh, it is the pharmacist's duty to, uh, to dispense something that works really, really well at the lowest cost. Uh, so in terms of uh, kind of uh, pharmacist involvement at in large institutions, uh, pharmacists will be very, very involved with deciding what specific product to stock and use. So that might be manufacturer A, that might be manufacturer B. Um, you know, the manufacturer A and manufacturer B might have uh, might make that biological product. Might, one might be called the originator. The other might be called the biosimilar. Uh, but uh, the pharmacist will be a part of the discussions of reviewing to make sure and deciding which specific product uh, to stock and use within that institution. And you can be confident that uh, whatever the decision is made, uh, that uh, it's, uh, it's the best product at the lowest cost. Um, the other way that pharmacists are involved is, uh, and this is more of the traditional dispensing side of it, um, you, might, uh, you, you might work with like a specialty pharmacy for things that are self-administered. Um, so we like to uh, think of uh, the classic self-administered product as being an oral product, a, a, a pill, if you will, um, but there are products that people may inject to themselves uh, and within uh, the treatment of cancer, most likely these will be uh, the supportive care medications, so those to support your white count uh, or to support your blood counts. Um, and this isn't commonly done right now uh, in, um, in, uh, for, for cancer therapies or for supportive care and cancer therapies, uh, but it is possible uh, that people might get um, these, uh, these biologics uh, dispensed through a specialty pharmacy, um, and, uh, and mail to you uh, for self-administration. So it really depends on what the insurer or in a lot of situations what the employer actually um, demands in terms of how these products are, are given to patients. Uh, but, uh, but if that's the case, pharmacists will be involved in dispensing that particular product. Um, and what's important there is that they have to follow lots of rules according to uh, what the insurance company requires to, uh, to be sent over. Uh, based upon what they'll pay for, uh, uh, but again, also what the employer requires in terms of what they'll pay for. So some things to ask your pharmacist if you're um, kind of uh, involved in that situation where there are some uh, biologics that are sent over to you uh, to be self-administered is that based off your benefit design, there could be clear differences in out-of-pocket costs in terms of which particular product uh, will result in a lower copay. You can always ask your pharmacist about that in terms of if there's an alternative available, a different uh, uh, biological product for the same biological medicine. Um, you can always ask, well, is there a difference in terms of the out-of-pocket costs uh, based upon what the insurance has uh, designed for me? Um, <clears throat> the other uh, part of it is that if it's a therapy uh, that um, you have been receiving in the past, um, and, uh, and then there is uh, a, a switch to a different product because, uh, let's say, the insurance company requires that, um, then there might be sl some slight differences in, in what we call the product presentation, so what it looks like. So one product might come in a syringe, the other might come in a vial, uh, and uh, there, there might be some slight differences in how uh, you have to manipulate that. So it's always important to, to ask about um, is there anything you need to do differently with that particular product? So uh, the last thing, you know, uh, that I want to talk about was kind of how your pharmacist may assist in kind of that um, timely refilling, and we call that more uh, adherence, uh, something called adherence. And uh, we want you to take your medicines because we know that uh, that's going to be really important for uh, it maximizing the benefit that you get out of those uh, but also we want you to have appropriate follow-up in terms of uh, making sure that uh, those medicines don't cause significant toxicity. So depending on where uh, you are um, and, and kind of uh, where you're being seen, you might see some pharmacists out there who are actively monitoring you for those toxicities um, and have some programs in place to maximize 
uh, your benefit to uh, those those products. So uh, you might uh, be working closely with your pharmacist on that. Uh, but minimally, what probably will happen is that um, you can so- sign up for refill reminders uh, to get a call uh, to help you stay on track with those medications. So um, that's uh, all the I guess all the time I have uh, for this. And um, certainly, I look forward to answering any questions that you may may have. And I'll I'll turn it back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Lee. That was really outstanding as well. Also, all these wonderful speakers and also just wonderful information. It's important to understand about the role of the pharmacist. I think um, it's a very important role, particularly for many of the people on the call today who are taking multiple medications for many different reasons and um, not for the cancer treatment, but also may have other health problems as well. Just wonderful to coordinate with your pharmacist and um, and for so many reasons. So I know there'll be questions for Dr. Lee also um, during the Q&A. Um, I just want to say a few words um, about cancer care before we do take questions, and so please do start writing down your questions, and um, as soon as I finish um, uh, my few remarks, um, uh, Glenda will come back and explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. So uh, Cancer Care is a national organization, and we provide free practical and financial and psychosocial support to people living with cancer. And what does that mean? We do have a financial assistance program. We have a copay assistance program, um, which helps with many of the medications for um, your, your chemotherapy agents. Uh, those are more generous grants, larger grants. We also help with transportation for treatment, home care, child care. Um, and we also um, offer counseling services, which is really a chance to talk with a trained oncology social worker, master's level trained oncology social worker, about some of the concerns you may have. And some of those concerns, there could be so many, but one might be just about how am I going to cope with this? How do I talk to my children? How do I talk to my boss? Um, how do I talk to my friends about this? I feel different. Um, we also have, so that can be done basically on the on telephone with our social workers. Um, we also have many different types of support groups. We have telephone support groups so that many people in terms of travel, it's difficult. And so talking on the telephone works really well for many people. And we also have online support groups. At the moment, we have 120 online support groups, different topics, different types of cancers, also some for caregivers. So for many different, um, if you kind of go to our website, you'll be able to see all the different groups we offer. And um, so you may find them quite interesting and helpful to you. Um, if you like to write, the online support groups are really helpful. If you like to talk or listen, the telephone groups might be really helpful. So I think, and you also if you just like to have someone just to talk to yourself. Um, and so those are all available. They're free, and um, they're simply um, you can simply call us um, at our 800 number or visit our website. I'm going to all that information you've received already, and you're going to get all those informational pieces. Actually, um, when you get your evaluation, you'll be getting all those numbers. So rather than having to feel you have to write them all down now, you'll be getting them actually um, um, very shortly um, as soon as the program ends. So with that all being said, um, uh, I am going to now turn this program over to um, Glenda, who's going to explain to you how to queue up for questions. And we'd like to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your questions, I will then uh, come back on at the end to wrap it up, and I will actually give you all suggestions of how to get your questions answered. So let's see how many we can take right now, Glenda. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than 1 on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. And our first question comes from the line of Emil S. Your line is now open. Thank you. How different and safe are biosimilars compared to generics, and are the biosimilars FDA, all of them are FDA approved? Well, thank you, Emil, for that for those questions. And Dr. Grala, would you like to start by addressing that question? Okay. Yes, indeed, uh, approved biosimilars in the U.S. are FDA approved and uh, they must pass very rigorous safety uh, criteria. Um, So uh, they generally uh, are very similar in both their efficacy and safety compared with the originator uh, molecule. There may be some differences, which your doctor can explain, uh, but as a general rule, they're they're quite similar. Again, they must be FDA-approved. Excellent. And does anyone else want to add to that? Or? Uh, this is Jeff Crawford. I would only add that um, that we're still relatively early in the biosimilar process. These agents have been available in Europe for a much longer time period. And the, I guess the reassuring thing is that while there are several 
available there. They have not seen issues develop over the last several years with their institution of, of agents. So we hope that that will also be true here because the rigorousness by which the FDA looks at these agents is at least as much, if not more, uh, than the originator molecules. Excellent. And we, um, and Dr. Lee, did you want to add anything as well? Or? Yeah, um, you know, certainly I'll, I'll also add to the fact that in addition to Europe, um, with uh, the biosimilar that we have available for many years, uh, there have been post-market studies looking at whether or not um, they are the same in terms of how well they work and the safety, and all of those uh, follow-up studies show that there's no differences between uh, the biosimilar and the reference product. So uh, it makes us feel very comfortable about them. Excellent. Thank you. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, and this was addressed, but nevertheless, if this person is not clear about it, we'll ask it again, even though it was covered already. Um, so, Dr. Crowler, um, what is the difference between generics and biosimilars? <laughs> okay. Well, it, it's, um, you know, something that bears repeating, and thank you for uh, asking so when we think of generics, we think of a chemical structure, as most medicines are, and uh, therefore we know the exact chemical structure of an originator medicine that's a chemical, and then when it goes off patent, uh, that uh, structure is available and known to other companies that may then uh, duplicate that exact chemical structure, essentially, and then uh, and then produce a product that's reviewed and has to undergo certain testing by the FDA. So then you have a generic drug. So if it's an antibiotic, it's uh, made in the same way. Uh, that is, the chemical structure is the same. Now with biologics, these are ex often extremely complex structures. And in fact, it's not that one recreates the exact structure. But recreates, but creates, creates a biologic that works in the same way, and then has to undergo the testing that my colleagues have talked about. So it's a biologic biosimilar. It may not be chemically identical, whereas with uh, generic drugs, chemical drugs, then that is based on the same chemical structure. Okay, I, I hope that's. Um, similar. So generic replies to our typical chemical medicines, and that's the way that goes. Biosimilar means producing a similar, but not necessarily chemically identical product. Excellent. Thank you. Do you want to add to that, Dr. Crawford, Dr. Lee? Or... Uh, I would just add that you know one one thing I've learned. Uh, uh, through this process over the last couple of years is that even for the reference biologics, because they have to be produced in different lots and different batches over time, there can be slight changes in that biologic. So the originator biologic today is not identical to the one of 10 years ago. And because of that, the FDA requires oversight of the production of these agents, of the originator molecules, throughout its life cycle. So in some ways, they are biosimilars of themselves. And the biosimilar process is just taking advantage of that and going through the same rigor uh, that the originator molecules do. Oh, that's very helpful. Thank you. And, and Dr. Lee, did you add anything? Yeah, um, I, I think uh, it's helpful to think of these as different um, legal or regulatory constructs. Um, and for the differences that Dr. Grala described earlier is that uh, you cannot, in order to get FDA approved, uh, the data packages look different for a generic than for a biosimilar. So uh, because these, these are uh, chemicals versus biological products. So um, by nature of the fact that the data to get it FDA approved looks different, it can't be called a generic. Um, and, and I think that's the biggest distinguishing factor there. Um, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking about a drug, for, you know, for generics, we're talking about a drug um, which is the, the medicine, the chemical medicine that you take, and the different drug products that are available. And then we have a biologic, uh, which is the biologic that's injected into somebody, um, and the different biological products that are available, whether or not that's the originator or that branded product or the biosimilar product. Excellent. Thank you. Well, wow, this is wonderful. And I think we have another telephone question. So go ahead. And our next question comes from the line of Susan R. Your line is now open. Susan R., your line is now open. 
Susan, want to unmute your line, Susan? Sorry, I'm here. I'm here. Okay. I, sure. I had to okay. okay. That's okay. Um, <laughs> Hi. Um, I was wondering how they test for the efficacy of these uh, biosimilars. Okay, that's a wonderful question. Um, Dr. Crawford, do you want to address that? Yeah, well, I, I think it, it really depends upon the actual uh, biologic agent. So for the for the first biologic uh, biosimilar, this uh, biosimilar filgrastim or GCSF or nupigen um, by any name. So th this is a white blood cell stimulator. So it was, after all the preclinical testing showed that it was as similar as possible to the originator molecule, it was tested in in patient people and patients, and specifically in breast cancer patients, a trial was done uh, of chemotherapy. One group of patients got the originator nupigen uh, protein. The others got the biosimilar. And what they were able to show is that the um, uptake into the bloodstream and the clearance of the molecules were the same in both situations, and then its effect on the white blood cell count recovery after chemotherapy was also the same. So they showed the same response uh, between the two agents. And then the overall impact of that was the rates of infection and other things were, were almost almost the same between the two groups. So that, that provided both sort of a biologic response as well as a clinical response that gave confidence that uh, that agent was as effective, uh, the, the biosimilar filgrastin was as effective as the originator. Now, uh, with red cells, it's a similar thing looking at anemia, uh, but for most of the therapeutic products, we're looking at is response rate. We look, we look in the clinical setting to show that the response of the cancer to whatever the biosimilar is is similar, very similar in response to the originator molecule. So that tends to be the clinical point. And at the same time, obviously, looking to make sure there's not any difference in safety, any side effects that are different, any development of antibodies. So it's a very rigorous testing that's done uh, in the clinical arena to be sure that all of the preclinical work pays out in the clinic. Thank you. And, and Dr. Garland, do you want to add anything? Or? No, I think that's exactly right. And uh, okay. so I think maybe just to address the uh, uh, caller's point is that uh, those are all endpoints in people. So you can have a lot of confidence when uh, that testing is done to show similar efficacy. And, and Dr. Lee, did you want to add anything? Or? Yeah, you know, and um, I, I want to go back to the, uh, the the big theme here is that, um, you know, again, thinking about the, the biologic versus the biological product, um, the, the biologic has already been shown to, to be safe and effective. You know, that's why it's been approved. And basically, uh, the data package that the biosimilar manufacturer submits is to show that they've made a product um, that basically is, uh, that is what's called highly similar to that, uh, the, that the product that's already been out there for many, many years. Um, so, uh, so we know we have uh, full confidence that uh, these products um, will, would work the same as, uh, as what's already been, been used. Excellent. Thank you. And um, uh, we have an, a question in front of our online participants. Um, and um, I'm going to ask maybe Dr. Lee if you could start. I'll, I'll read the question and see if this seems like a good choice here. Do all patents for a drug need to expire before a biosimilar will become available? Or can a biosimilar get a partial label as patents expire? Yeah, that's uh, a really great question. And um, so there's, a, there's two um, components to this. There's uh, what's called marketing exclusivity, and then there's the patents um, that, uh, you know, that the manufacturer has to actually produce the product. So marketing exclusivity, so um, legally when a new product, uh, a new drug or a new biologic is approved, um, no other company can come in and produce that uh, because uh, they get what's called market exclusivity. Now, once that expires, uh, then what happens is somebody can come, another manufacturer can come in and make that as long as they haven't either infringed on certain patents um, or if, uh, if there are patents that have expired, you know, they can, they can certainly kind of do it that way. So what happens is that um, these companies patent 
uh, a number of things. Uh, uh, first and foremost, how they make the product. So uh, it could be something as simple as uh, the cell line that they that they start off with, or um, certain uh, certain procedures that they use uh, in their manufacturing plant. Uh, that could be patented, and that could still be protected under the patent, uh, and it hasn't expired yet. So uh, these other companies that come in to make that have to find a workaround um, to not infringe on that patent. Um, but to to make the product um, that is highly similar without uh, infringing on that patent. Um, but the other part of the patent process is also with specific indications, so what you can market um, that product for. Um, and so we do have examples of certain uh, of of certain bios uh, biosimilars that are approved. Um, and they don't have the same exact indications or all of the indications of the reference product uh, because there are some indications that are still on patent. So it's not that um, it, so it's not that uh, there wasn't any ruling about the uh, the uh, about whether or not it um, wouldn't work in that situation. It, all, all it simply means is that they're not allowed to market their product for that indication because it's still. On patent now, you know we can have a huge discussion about uh, patent litigation and how uh, the courts kind of uh, uh, delay a little bit, um, you know, the launch of biosimilars because all of these patents are are being battled in court. Um, but uh, I think that's for another time. Thank you very much. Very comprehensive. And Dr. Agrawal, do you want to add to that? Or? No, that's a great answer, and I think it should give everybody an awful lot of uh, terrific information. Absolutely, Dr. Crawford. Do you you asked the right person first, Carolyn. He clearly is the expert on that. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. And thank you, Dr. Lee. That was very comprehensive and excellent. And so I hope that helps everyone to understand this process. Um, and we have another online question. Um, um, and so I'm going to ask Dr. Grawler if you could address this. Where would one inquire to see if there is a biosimilar? Gee, that's a good question. The first place to start with, I think, is with your oncologist and uh, in their office and uh, to understand uh, that, and, and the doctor should be able to uh, answer that. But uh, And maybe Dr. Lee and Dr. Crawford can add, but I'm sure uh, you can uh, um, search for it uh, using any uh, good search engine such as Google, et cetera, and probably at the FDA website to search for biosimilar 4 and put in the originator name. And I think you can find it that way. But I think asking at your doctor's office uh, uh, could then engender a nice uh, brief discussion that, that should be able to answer all one's questions. Thank you. And Dr. Crawford, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, at the current time, uh, there's a limited number of biosimilars available, the ones we've, we've discussed uh, already, and the ones really waiting for the patent expirations for uh, bevacizumab and trastuzumab. But, um, so there aren't that many right now, but I, but I think being informed on this would be useful. And I think because there are so many different companies uh, involved in the development of biosimilars, this is a really important issue to them. They want to develop educational materials. They want to try to help uh, explain this not only to the physicians and nurses and uh, advanced practice providers and pharmacists, uh, but they also want to really explain it to patients and families so they understand that this is that these aren't generics, they're not uh, uh, lesser agents, that they really uh, have the same rigor and really one can extrapolate the originator molecule and with, with confidence. But but there is a lot of education to go on. So I, I would uh, agree with Dr. Grawler going to your oncologist to at least talk about where they think this is going and what agents they're working with right now. And then the websites would be helpful. Excellent. And Dr. Lee, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I definitely just want to add um, and, uh, and go with what everybody else said. Um, I, I would start with your uh, providers, your, your healthcare providers, oncologists, and your, your medical team. Um, and, you know, just recognize that, uh, you know, we, we want everybody to be on therapies that work, but also um, don't have significant financial implications for people. So I think a lot of people know when these products are available um, and are excited about them in terms of helping to reduce um, costs for everybody. So, uh, so I think people will, will know about them and, um, and uh, simply uh, ask about them. And we have an interesting question from one of our participants. Um, I'm going to um, ask Dr. Crawford if you could start with this one. Is there a greater chance of an adverse reaction with a biosimilar as opposed to a generic? 
the, the short answer is no. Um, there's no reason to think that the biosimilar should have more adverse effects than the uh, originator. And that's really because of the testing that's done that ultimately has to be completed for the FDA or other regulatory agencies to approve the agent. So because of the uh, – we, we know that the development of the agent is such that it's highly clinically similar to the original molecule that only very minor impurities and other things are present that should not lead to um, any increased adverse events. Now, that said, just like with the, bio, the original bio, biologics, there's always going to be post-marketing surveillance, and that's going to happen with the biosimilars uh, as well. And it has been happening, as we said, in Europe, and thus far there haven't been the development of any uh, unusual or adverse consequences from the biosimilars. Excellent. I mean, it's a sophisticated question. I don't know if everyone really understands what an adverse reaction is. If you could just say something more about that, I'm still not well, um, An adverse reaction is, is a side effect of the medicine. It's, it's something that develops uh, with any drug. One can develop side effects, headaches, skin rash, other things that might happen with any number of drugs. And so uh, that's true for biologics as well, um, uh, that there might be side effects that are known. Um, but... The safety profile of the biosimilar, what what side effects might be expected, should really be identical to the originator molecule. Um, so there shouldn't be a difference in the side effect or slash adverse event. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Gall, do you want to add anything? Or? No, that's just exactly right. <laughs> okay. And, and Dr. Lee? I have nothing to add. That was great. Okay. Okay. Um, so, um, so that was an interesting question. Um, from one of our online participants. Um, and um, Dr. Grawler, if you could start with this one. Do studies and trials of biosimilars include a population that may be more sensitive to drugs like the elderly and people with certain conditions, other health problems, or do they rely on just healthy individuals? So, um, gee, that's very difficult to answer in in that in that way. As as there's more and more experience with different drugs, uh, different drugs and biologicals, there's more and more experience in special populations. Uh, uh, I'm not speaking of any particular uh, agent now, but people with certain diseases, uh, that is, that they're intended for, people with, um, with uh, different conditions like liver problems or kidney problems, and again, I think that one has to recognize that the biosimilars are made to be as biologically identical to the original as possible. And then, as my colleagues have mentioned, all of these drugs, since they had to go off patent, basically, to be there, there are years of experience with the originator uh, molecule. Uh, and that these could include either publications or original approvals for certain at-risk populations, such as the uh, the question uh, says. So there's a lot of experience in that way, and where the experience is different here is that the product is made to be similar and see how it works. So therefore, questions could remain when there's less experience, but we then tend to go back to the years of of clinical uh, evidence uh, in elderly, in younger, in uh, people with uh, different uh, types of cancers. Excellent. Thank you. And Dr. Crawford, did you want to add anything? Yeah, that, that was great. The only thing I would say is that really the, the biosimilar, um, the confidence in the biosimilar is really based on the confidence in the originator molecule because we're really taking this body of work and extrapolating to all the years of experience of the originator and so if that's been well-developed and well-tested in different populations, then you can feel confident that's going to be true for the biosimilar. That's really helpful. And Dr. Lee, did you want to add anything as well? Oh, I have nothing to add. That was uh, really great and really perfect. And I, I just want to reiterate the, uh, what everybody said in terms of we have confidence in the originator, um, and that's kind of what we base um, everything off of. That's excellent. And... Um, I think this will probably be our last question, um, and I'm going to give the question to Dr. Lee. What if my healthcare team offers me a biosimilar drug, but I want the original <laughs> to address that? Yeah, um, you know, certainly it's uh, well within a, a, a 
person's individual right to request a specific uh, product. Um, now, there are uh, certainly parameters placed around that. So if we, if we kind of go to the generics example, uh, it is well within a person's right to request uh, the branded product over the generic. Now, the issue with that um, is because uh, is that now, um, you know, that person is responsible for any incremental cost uh, that um, you know that that uh, you know the insurance benefit mandates now um, because of the differential be between the cost of the brand uh, versus the generic product. So um, you know, one could one could foresee um, kind of similar situations, especially uh, the the for self-administered products, um, it'll be. Uh, probably something very similar to, uh, to what's been established for generics. There might be a difference in terms of out-of-pocket costs uh, for the reference products um, compared to uh, the biosimilar. Um, in terms of if you're going and getting something administered and infused in a clinic, that might be a little bit more complicated because uh, what typically happens is that um, you know, the, the institution will decide that they're going to stock one particular product, and really the reason for that is to be able to get a good contract for a good price on that so that everybody benefits, you know, um, the, the savings are passed, you know, the, the system saves money and that, that's uh, passed on uh, to everybody, including the insurance company and the patients. Um, so it, it really benefits everybody to, to kind of have that. Um, and then if, uh, if an individual wants to request a specific product, um, there, are, there is the ability to request um, exemptions um, to that, but typically you have to follow uh, some sort of paperwork uh, to get that approved. So it might delay um, a little bit uh, in terms of how quickly you get the medicine, but it is possible uh, to be able to do that. Yeah, I'd just like to add that, you know, when an institution decides to carry a certain drug, and Dr. Lee would be very involved, Dr. Crawford would be very involved with the decision, um, they really have difficulty in taking a new version if the doctors and pharmacists don't agree that this is a reasonable choice for the patients. Okay, so you can have that confidence. You should surely, if you have any doubts, ask your doctor if your doctor feels that this is a good decision. And also be aware that, you know, even with drugs, medicines that have been off patent for many years, if you want the name brand, it may be dreadfully more expensive. And um, uh, I would say this, at least for myself, I always get the generics. Thank you. And um, and Dr. Crawford, do you want to add anything as well? I, I think uh, my colleagues have summed this up very well. It, it, it'll be a discussion that will come up over and over again. That's why we're having a conference like this, so you can all be prepared to learn more about this and talk with your healthcare providers about it. Well, this is, thank you. And this has been an extraordinary pro program. I want to thank our speakers. You've really done amazing, I have to say, and very very informative. And also I want to thank our participants for really asking such really thoughtful and, and very thoughtful questions. And, and you've been getting really such really supportive answers to your questions as well. And um, we hope you'll take this information, of course, back to your treating healthcare team um, and that you'll also feel more confident asking any questions you have of your healthcare team because here you've had an opportunity to see the kinds of answers that you'll be able to get and, and just feel more confident in just asking any questions that you may have. Um, now, I did say that if you do have questions and didn't get them answered, that there's places to get them answered, so I want to first uh, attend to that before we conclude. Um, so if you have a question, and, um, you, and you, many of you are still in, you do have questions, I realize, um, first, first of all, I've said this, I think, throughout the program, we've all said this, your healthcare team, of course, is a good place to have that discussion. It's really important to bring that discussion, even whatever you've learned today, bring it back to your treating healthcare team. Um, but also, in addition to that, some of you like to go to other places to get information. So you do have um, on all the materials you received from Cancer Care up until now, um, all these different organizations that you can contact. Um, and I also certainly recommend that people can contact the National Cancer Institute. They have an 800 number and they have a website. And their website happens to have a live chat feature, so people all over the world 
and that's true for all the websites, can access the information on their websites. And also, um, you can actually um, post your question, and they'll, the information specialist will get you all the information that you need. Their website is www.cancer.gov. And for those of you who would like to have some more help from Cancer Care, whether it be our practical and financial assistance or our counseling services, please do call us at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website at www.cancercare.org. Most importantly, we do not want anyone to leave this program knowing that you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of all these resources out there for you. And we recognize that in the middle of the night sometimes, wherever you are in the world, or just during the day sometimes, you do feel alone. You, don't, you do have places to call for help, and they're all free services, and so do take advantage of them. And you do have your healthcare team as well, all of whom are there for you as well. Um, I just like to mention that we do have a program on cancer survivorship coming up on June 19th, which might be of interest to all of you. And we also happen to have planned um, a program on CAR T cell therapy, which I know many of you are interested in learning more about, on June 25th. So you'll be getting information about those programs. There are lots of others as well, but I just thought I would highlight those. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. I want to thank our speakers, all of you, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.